Thank you, Tracy. A challenging passage of God's word. Um, that last song, it was written by some guy named Jay Rose. Who is that? Who is this Jay? Somebody's been reading the Bible, too, and especially the Gospel of Mark. And we'll even hear it today, that so much of what was in that wonderful song comes straight from this. Well, can you believe that 2012 is over? I, I just... Just seems like when I was younger, years went by slower than they do now, just flying by. But 2013 is a new year, and I'll, I'll tell you, there's been one thing that's been so much on my mind, and I want to talk about it today. I, I want us to think about the role that this book, that the Bible, uh, should play in the life of our church. What I'm really praying, uh, the, the role it will play in your life. It's been interesting to me. I moved here in, in 2007. And I've talked with a lot of Southern Californians about how they view the Bible. And I've been so surprised. I really have been surprised by the way most people talk to me about the Bible. There are the few, and you, all, you meet the people all over the world, that do, the, the few that just view the Bible as a bunch of legends and as a myth. Uh, you know, I, I, I've spent years in the academy dealing with that issue. And a few people here in Southern California talk to me about the Bible that way. And then there are a few who also seem to be upset about some of the things they think that the Bible teaches, especially about things of marriage or, or, or justice or, or the sanctity of life. I mean, that comes up, too. But I've really been surprised that most of the people I talk with here in Southern California just seem to think that there, there are real value here in the Bible. I think especially those who have come to our community from outside the U.S., just really feel that there must be something of value in this book and would like to know more uh, about it if they possibly could. Most Southern Californians are spiritual people for the most part. And they just seem to think, and I don't know if you're visiting, you may be a part, they think there surely are things that are inspirational in the Bible and there are things that are motivational in the Bible. I, this really hit me after our Christmas Eve services. I invited some people I've gotten to know in the community. They're, they're Buddhist background. They come mostly out of China. They came on uh, Christmas Eve services. They were sitting way in the very back, and they loved them when I talked with them afterwards. They loved the services. But then they said when we had all these scripture readings that happened, remember they went from the beginning to the end of scripture, they said we just couldn't figure out what was going on. Uh, it sounded good to us, but we couldn't figure out what, what this was all about. And I began to realize that so many people here in our community, when they pull up the Bible, they don't see any difference between oh, the book of First Chronicles and the book of Acts. Uh, when we read it, sometimes they just open it up and are just so confused because some of it is poetry, you know. And then other parts of it is historic narrative and other parts of this apocalyptic literature. I remember one of the people told me after, after the Christmas Eve services, you know what would be good for me, Pastor Greg, he said, if you just took out the, the good parts and, and put the quotes, the good quotes into one book, then, then I could just get at the parts I want to get to. So I want to talk about that for a few moments. In the moments that I have today, it's a huge topic. Uh, and I'm convinced that we need to have more uh, just basic courses here for all of us in how to read the Bible. And we're going to be doing that. But today I want to look at this text. I don't know if you noticed as Tracy read. Didn't you think that that was kind of an obscure text? All this stuff about washing pots and pans and all the declaring things korban. So what are we going to do with that today? 
I'll tell you, as, as we pull back and look at this text, in Mark chapter 7, verses 1 to 13, we see that what Jesus was dealing with there is what I want to talk to you about. The people in his day, and, and people who'd read the Bible a lot, were misreading the Bible, uh, or misapplying the Bible. And in the way that they were doing it, they were undermining the very purpose of the Bible. People weren't really getting to know God or to love God. And when you pull back, and what I want to show you today is what Jesus talks about is, is something about that can become a guide for us. The way that Jesus talks to us, and I think even us here in Southern California, about some principles about how to read the Scriptures. And I have come to see that if, if we can really boil them down, that they can mean as much to us as they meant in the time when Jesus spoke them. So let's take a few moments. I, I've, just, I've put them in my own words. But I've tried to boil down a couple of the principles that might help us as this year I'm praying the Bible will be more than ever before at the very heart and center of our church and of our lives. So, so the first one is this. I think that Jesus is getting at this point that the scriptures, that the Bible should shape and direct our beliefs and our lives. So, so that the Bible should be that authority that, that shapes uh, what we believe, our faith, and shapes and directs not only that, but also the decisions we make and the way we live life. Now, when you see it up here, isn't this sort of a, uh, a gentle way at getting at something that most of us just hate? I was trying to get, get a hearing for it. And then, because you know, ever since Genesis chapter 3, uh, where people went their own way, we haven't wanted anything else to shape and direct our lives. We wanted to shape and direct our own lives, Right? And I'm getting at the point that when we come and, and we see that this is God's word and that he has made us and, and we're account, then his, what he has said to us should shape what we believe in our lives and uh, it should um, direct the decisions that we make, the authority for what we believe and how we live. And, and let's face it, for most of us as human beings, submitting to anything uh, is, is not our favorite thing to do. We'd rather just do things... Anybody agree with me? Okay, you didn't say, you weren't excited about that point. So, in reading the Bible, even when people find it to be something, there must be value there. I find that there are two tendencies that we get to. One I call libertarianism and the other one legalism. Libertarianism is the kind of thing where you pull it up and say, yeah, there's some parts of this I like and other parts that I don't. And those parts that I don't, I'm free to do whatever I want. So we're still running our own lives. We're just trying to get a little inspiration of the Bible. And there are a lot of people who read it that way. On the other side, most of us who are churchgoers might have a tendency to go the other way. And that's what I call legalism. We pull out certain points of Scripture and we say, but it doesn't deal with some of the issues that I face. Well, there might be some principles here, but I want something more concrete. And so we come up with all sorts of rules. And almost every religious group has them. And many churches have had all these rules. And, and they, we start to think that they must be in the Bible, but when we actually come back to the Bible to try to find them, we can't find them. Do you know what I'm talking about here? Well, that's what Jesus was dealing with in the first century. Five times in this short passage, Mark 7, 1 to 13, five times we read about the traditions of the elders. And these traditions, Jesus saw some real spiritual dangers in them. Now, you've got to be with me. It's not that Jesus was opposed to traditions altogether. Uh, there, traditions have importance for us. They, traditions provide a rhythm 
for our lives, a kind of shape and, and order for our lives. What, what Jesus opposed was the tendency of traditions to take on a clout and an author, authority that they were never intended to have. I mean, to, to show you the value of the traditions, um, can you imagine if I said, all right, we're not going to have any traditions like ever church anymore. Like this tradition of, of having set services, one five o'clock on Saturday night and two Sunday morning at nine and eleven. Those are just traditions. They regiment our lives. We're going to do it in a different way. Instead, I'm just going to kind of figure out whenever I want to have services. So what you should do is just drive by the church. And uh, if you happen to see my par- car parked out there, then why don't you just come in and see if we're... Ha- it would be a disaster, Right? Uh, psychologists tell us that we as human beings, we need traditions to, to, for our psychological health, to provide direction and, and order and pacing in our lives. Sociologists tell us we can't even really have a community unless we have some, some traditions. So it's not that Jesus was altogether against traditions. It's just that traditions are to be like the, well, using some of the biblical language, the, the wine skins. The important part was the wine, not, not the skins. It, but it provided some shape to carry what was important. But, but the, the tendency is that sometimes it's the rules and traditions that, that have become more important and more central in the lives of religious people than the thing that, that they're supposed to be holding. And that had happened in Jesus' days, uh, they had had the scriptures, uh, teaching them about who God was, giving them even the Ten Commandments. And then many of them had had sort of a way of applying it. And you've got to do this. I do this every Sunday. We need to apply that. What does that look like in our day? But the way that it was applied in their day became its own set of authoritative rules, the traditions of the elders, and it had gotten to the point that the rules had become the most important thing and sometimes even undermined their love of God and the most important things that are found in the Bible. And Jesus took on two of them. They're things that seemed obscure. Maybe as Tracy read it, they seemed obscure to you. This thing of a ritualistic washing of all sorts of stuff and this thing called korban. So I'll, I'll just take a moment and tell you about, about those two things. This matter of ritual cleansing in verses 5 through 8, where eventually they were washing everything and, and washing themselves everywhere. It, it's not talking about us getting our kids to wash up their hands before they eat. It's not talking about that. You know what this was all about? It goes all the way back um, to Exodus chapter 30, and a, and a very important truth in the Bible, that when um, people brought offerings to God, when they knew that their lives weren't right, the priest who would be the one who would bring that offering to the altar was to go and symbolically wash his hands. And by that, what was communicated was God is holy and perfect. And, and none of us is holy, not a one of us. And yet at the same time, this holy God wants to have a relationship with us. It's beautiful, isn't it? And, but what has to happen is our sins need to be forgiven for us to be able to have that relationship to be reconciled, to have a relationship with God. And what this is, the offerings, the sacrificial system was showing all of this. And, and as they brought the, the sacrifices of, of a pure and blameless lamb to God to say, we know we have sinned, but we know you also are ready to forgive us. It was a beautiful symbol of, yes, we know our hands need to be cleansed. But you see, by the time of Jesus, it wasn't just the priests who were washing. It was everybody who had to wash. 
And it wasn't just the hands that were to be washed, but every part of the person. And not just that, but everything. They washed kettles. They washed their, their clothing. They washed their couches. And eventually it had come to become a something that they said, well, we've got to stay away from any people who are defiled. And if we've had any contact with these rotten people, we've got to wash ourselves and actually stay away from them. Like whom? Are you still with me here? It would be like people like us, mostly, uh, Gentiles, or sometimes carnal Jews that didn't show up at the services. So we're going to stay away from those people. And, and the very thing, God said, I have, I'm holding you together as a people so you can be a light to the Gentiles and to the entire world. These rules had made it so that they had, had, had set up a wall to keep them from having any contact with people. And those rules had become the most important thing in their lives, especially this ritualistic cleansing. In verse 8, Jesus says clearly, you have let go of the commands of God. And what you're holding on to is these traditions. And he calls them traditions of men. They're not from God. So that's the first thing we've got to see. And then the second one that he takes on is declaring things korban, verses 9 through 13. Well, what on earth is that? Um, korban was also based on something really good, the first commandment. You know, nothing in the place of God. God is to have the priority in our lives. I preach about that all the time, don't I? First commandment, God first. Uh, But what happened was over the years, this practice called Korban had come about where people were able to dedicate, to show the priority of God over everything, to dedicate certain things we have to God, and that would be called Korban. But then what had happened, and it happened often, was dedicating something with God was really a way of holding on to it myself. So that if a son had become very, very successful and had gained a lot of properties, sometimes he would take his properties and declare them Corban. Now, as long as he was alive, he could still use them, farm them, make money with them. But if his parents were going through a tough time and they came and said, oh, we, we don't have enough to even be sustained and we have a lot of properties, can we use? He says, oh, I would love to help you. But, you know, that's been dedicated to God. It's Corban. So, I'm sorry, I, I, I can't use you. This made Jesus angry. <laughs> he said, you are breaking the, the Ten Commandments, the, the clear law of God, the, the fifth one, you know. Honor your father and mother with this pretense that you're really dedicating it to God. He was very, very unhappy. And then in verse 13, he describes, and you do many things like that. And the main point of it is in this place in, 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 from Isaiah 29, verse 13, where Jesus quotes Isaiah. He said, these people worship me in vain. They think they're worshiping. They pretend they are worshiping me by doing all this stuff or refusing to do all this stuff. But they're really not worshiping me. And the principle that Jesus gives us is if we fail to have all of our practices directed by this word, we are going to ultimately fail to worship and honor God. Do you see that? And he's saying that there is nothing that should have equal authority in directing our, 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 our gatherings and in our personal lives. Nothing is to have equal authority to, uh, to, uh, to be compared to what is found in this word. Not our emotions. Or we say, I don't know if I really like what I see here. Not our, not our own judgment. Not even the, the, the traditions and, and ways that have been passed down to us so that we are to check constantly our thinking and our lives and our practices at a church. 
we are to do it constantly in the light of what is actually found in this word. And, and what he says is if we don't do this as a church family and if we don't do it as, a, as individuals, ultimately we will dishonor God. So uh, th- these two things that Jesus took on, you, you see, they had some rooting, the origins of them in the Bible. Uh, they grew up around the Bible. But they'd taken on the same authority as the Bible and at the end undermined the very purpose of the Bible. Now, I ask, could the same thing happen in our day? I'm telling you, when you're in the midst of it, sometimes you can't see it. And sometimes I've asked myself, Lord, are there things in my own life and are there things here at Lake where we have allowed secondary things to become the most important things? And kept us from really knowing you and, and loving you and causing our life to keep from just vibrating, you know, with the life of God in the midst that the scriptures point us to. Sometimes I can't see them. I, when I lived in Europe, uh, it was interesting for me that there in Europe and also in parts of South America back in the 70s, uh, in certain conservative churches, they, they weren't allowed to go to soccer games. Did you know that? They weren't allowed to go to soccer games because brawls and fights were always breaking out in soccer games and these rules had developed around that. And that seems silly to me as an outsider. What does that have to do with the Bible, I kept thinking. But they could argue for it. Then I tried to pull back to my own background. I came to faith in Jesus at what most would consider a fundamentalist uh, independent church back in West Virginia. Now, I want you to notice this. I found, I met Jesus there. Hallelujah, right? And yet in, in my many years of being there, it just seemed to me that sometime this set of rules that we have, of things that we don't do, uh, they became more important, it seemed to me. My memories of sermons and thoughts, those are the things that seemed to be the most important. I heard more about those things than about Jesus at times. And the things we identified ourselves with sometimes seemed, seemed to be the most important things would not, was, was more like, I don't do this and I don't do this and I don't show up with, uh, to these kind of things, rather than the greatest commandments, which are love God with your whole being and love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, Jeff, uh, the students, I remember we would, when we were in our rebellious moments, uh, we would have this little thing that we would say, um, I don't drink and I don't chew and I don't go with girls who do. Now, that might be in the Bible. I haven't found it here. <laughs> now, when you think about it, both of those two things had some basis in wisdom. I mean, we had real problems with alcoholism in my hometown. Uh, there were problems with people with, you know, cancer, lung cancer was so severe. Yes. So there were problems with tobacco. And yet you see those things can become, this is what it's about to follow Jesus that call us away from Jesus. And this year, I'm I'm just praying that more than ever before, we we will become students of this word, we'll open up this word, and we'll check everything we do. Individually, I want you to do this. And as a church, I I want us to check what is the most important thing here. Constantly in the light of this beautiful and powerful word. I'll tell you, that's how Jesus lived his life. I've, I've been trying to get us to read through the Gospels all past December. I don't know if you did it. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. What you find out is repeatedly when Jesus had to make big decisions, he was guided by, his thinking was filled with what was in the Scriptures. Uh, there's a phrase, it is written. In his most difficult times, like in Matthew 26, When people were trying to even, his own disciples were trying to keep him from going to the cross. 
He said this must happen because Scripture has said that this is going to happen. His life was guided and directed by the Scriptures. Uh, in, the, in the big temptation he faced with Satan. Well, Satan was trying to get him to put himself ahead of his father's kingdom mission. Jesus kept quoting Scripture to him. You could say, it is written. And one time, if you know the stories, uh, Satan quoted Scripture, misquoted Scripture back to Jesus, ripped it out of context. But Jesus wasn't deterred. He corrected his misquoting and then used more scripture. And I think if, if, if Jesus allowed his life, his whole being to be filled and permeated with the scriptures so that whenever the tough decisions came, even when he was facing the cross, his life was directed and guided by scriptures. How much should we learn from him? Don't you think so? So, so I've, I've just jotted this down for us. We do need to learn Scripture, to read Scripture correctly. We, don't, we shouldn't rip it out of context the way that Satan did. But I, I hope it's clear uh, that what he, Jesus said to them is, is, has relevance to us. That if we will live, if you and I will live life as God created us to live it, what we have to learn to do is to bring the totality of our lives under the authority of this book. Uh, the heart of what we believe and, and what directs our lives, even when what we find in this book conflicts with our traditions and, and with our cultures and even with our own longings. So that's the first principle. Okay, the second. Now, why did God give us this book? And, and I think Jesus here is letting us know that he, he gives us the Bible. It's meant to deepen our relationship to God. Have you ever thought about it that way? This book is given to deepen your relationship and my relationship to God. So I'll, I'll put the question this way. I think I put it here. What, what does God want to happen to you and me when, when you and I make a commitment to start obeying this word? To learning it, to saying, okay, when you speak to me, I'm going to do it. What does God hope is going to happen to our lives? I just think there's so many people that have this strange idea that what God wants is some sort of boring and... and and rigid compliance to a set of rules and rituals. Does this make sense? I think a lot of people get that idea. That God gives us this book sort of as a checklist. Check, 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 check. I'm doing all of this stuff. So that we can then pretend we're more righteous than people out there. As was happening in the first century. That we can say, well, I don't do this and the other people do that. God has to be more... Or even that we can say, look, I've kept all this checklist. I showed up at church and I, I did this. I had not doing all that stuff and I didn't hang out with these people. So God, you'd better bless me and, and give me this promotion so that we can manipulate God into doing what we want him to do. Do you think God is that petty that he'd give us his word just to sort of bring us into compliance with a bunch of rituals? I'm telling you, that might be other religions, but that is not the faith of the Bible. God didn't give us the Bible just to make us do certain religious things or to make us feel self-righteous or to teach us how we can tap into this impersonal force and, and get him to do something that, we don't, that he doesn't want to do. The Bible is given so that you and I can have a close relationship with God. I want you to look again at the way that Jesus quotes, um, i get over to that text, the way he quotes Isaiah chapter uh, 29 and verse 13, in which he said, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Do you see that? 
what he it's so clear to me. God has given us his word so that our hearts would be close to him. It's just so beautiful to me. I, I, I don't know if I communicate or say it well to you. The God who made you and made me wants to be close to us. I did that whole message on, on Christmas Sunday morning that the main point of Jesus coming is so that we can know God. And then when he comes into our lives, our lives can be shaped to become the way that God created us to be. The purpose of the scriptures is to deepen our relationship to God. I I, I began to understand this when I was doing my doctoral work in Cambridge. I was sitting under a series of of messages from a pastor. The, The messages were in the Ten Commandments. And on one Sunday, he took us to Exodus 19 and 20. And he showed us something I'd really never thought about before. The order of when the commandments came. They came after God had saved his people. They'd been in slavery. He saved them. And then afterwards he gave them the commands. The way most people kind of think about religiosity is that first, here's what you've got to do. Check, check, check. Keep all these commands and then maybe I'll bless you. No, no, no. It is, I already love you. I mean, Jeremy, your song, God, had love with no cause. It's not that our uh, obedience to things causes God to love us. He loves you. It's just that once we've experienced his rescue... Then we say, how do I live? And he says, here's the way to live. Do you remember what he would say? I've given you these commands so that it would go well with you. So that you can have shalom. Uh, There's one passage in Exodus 19 where after he had already rescued them, uh, through Moses, this is what God says to his people. This is what you are to say to all the descendants of Jacob. This is what you are to tell to all the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Isn't that beautiful? Now, and here's the part we don't like usually, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, you will be my treasured possession. My treasured possession. So if... We realize that Jesus already came and gave his life for us. We respond to him and say, here is my life. I'll trust what you have done. How do I then live? And he says, here is my word. And yes, there are commandments there. And that's the part that most of us don't like. Wait a minute. I don't like this obedience thing. Uh, Why don't I just be able to believe and then live the way I want? Uh, When people say that to me, I say, you don't understand relationships. You don't understand relationships. All right, just think about it. Think about the first time you ever fell in love with anybody. Can, can you remember that far back? I'll tell you, when you fall in love with somebody, you begin a research project. You want to find out those things that that person you love doesn't like. And I'm telling you, you avoid those things. And you find out what that person that you love really enjoys. And those are the things that you do. And you begin readjusting your life to make sure that you please that person. Do you see that? And when you have two people in a relationship doing that, both kind of doing research and finding out what is it that really pleases that person. I'll tell you, when you start having a relationship like that, you have a real relationship. And that's what happens with God. We find out who he is, how much he loves us. We begin to fall in love with him. And we start doing a research project. And we find out from his word 
what he loves. And our greatest fear is to displease him. Our greatest joy is to, to please him. Because when we love somebody, what makes us happy is what makes them happy. Right? What makes us happy is what makes them happy. So, I wrote this down at two. Religiosity is just compliance to rituals and rules. I'm telling you, that is not the faith of the Bible. The, Bi- the Bible is about a God who made us for himself. And, and just as a human relationship is a lifelong journey in getting to know and grow with the other person, and it is, isn't it? So too, our relationship with God is a lifelong journey, getting to know God, having our life shaped to please him. And I'll tell you, learning to read and understand the Bible is a key to that journey. Uh, Kayam Potok, the great Jewish author, started one of his books, All Beginnings Are Hard. And in that book, the point that he's making is, but great things must have that beginning. So I know if, if you're new to church and new to the Bible, you'll pull this thing up and say, where do I start? And you'll open up First Chronicles chapters 1 through 12. Twelve chapters of names. <laughs> I just want you to know that when that happens, you say, I don't think I'm going to read anymore. That's where all of this sort of... We didn't all begin with First Chronicles. We can help you to find a better place to start. But uh, we all start because all journeys have that first starting point and that first start is hard, but it's worth it. It is worth it. And this year I'm just praying that all of us will, will take uh, more steps along that journey. Uh, I want us to, to read the Bible more often. Uh, I, I want you to find a small group. If you say this is new to me, find a small group with some people that's not so new to because the way you read the Bible will open the eyes of those other people, too. Haven't you seen that? When, when new people start saying, look, here's what I see. You say, well, well yeah, it's there, but I, I've read past that. So find, find a small group to do that. And we'll help you go right through that connect sign at the end of the church and service, and, and you'll be able to find one. Uh, the other thing, if, you, if this isn't your church and you're just visiting today, make sure that you find a church that seems to be relatively healthy because none of us are perfect. So don't, don't look for a perfect one. Relatively healthy, but where the Bible is opened. And, um, and then check everything that that teacher or preacher says um, by what's in this word. And, and I would really encourage you, too, to get a good study Bible. Now, a study Bible has some notes at the bottom. The thing you always have to remember is it's the Bible that's the authority. The notes are just notes, or we'll have the same trouble that they had back in Jesus' day. The notes will take on an authority they shouldn't have. But a study Bible I find to be helpful. And a a, a new one that I've started using is the ESV study Bible. I don't usually use that version, but this study Bible, it's massive. I mean, you can use it both for your spiritual strength and physical strength. Just carrying that thing. You can read it, but when there's parts that are confusing, it just gives you a a few basic kinds of guides to to help you with it. But just read the Bible. Set aside time in your life to read the Bible. Listen. Listen. For God's voice in it. When you sense God saying, this is what you should do, do it. When you sense this is something that should change, change it. And I'll tell you, your walk with God will come to life. And even church will not just be a bunch of uh, rituals and punching the clock. But of time with being with God who loves you. And our time is gone, so I'll just give you the third principle which I think is the key really to reading the Bible and the thing that I love to do when I read the Bible. And that is the Bible always points to the one who is at its center. You can try to guess who that might be. Now in Mark 7, 1 to 13, if you've been here for my earlier series in Mark, 
you've got to be struck by the fact that we have just seen these rapid fire miracles of Jesus. He has authority. He does, does things only God can do. So uh, he heals the sick. He forgives sins. When the winds and the waves are out of control, he speaks, be still, and they have to be still. Evil powers, he speaks, and they have to come out. You know, he does. And yet, with all of those things to point to who Jesus is, these people become so consumed by all of their rituals and rules, the only thing they notice are these inconsequential things, like washing pots and pans. I'm telling you, if they'd had eyes to see who Jesus is, they would have fallen on their knees and said, I think we've missed some things here. And would have been taught by him. You need to know Jesus said in John 5 that all of the scriptures point to him. You diligently study the scriptures because you think that by them you possess eternal life, he said. But these are the scriptures that testify about, about me. Luke chapter 24 has these two sections where they had misunderstood that the Messiah who was going to come and rescue them first had to suffer before the triumph came to understand the meaning of the cross. So he takes them back to the scripture and he says, how foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets, the scriptures have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then later enter the glory? So beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures and this phrase concerning himself. So in this, when I, I read the Bible, even, even some of the more difficult parts, I'm always looking to see how it points to Jesus. Uh, you, you've noticed that when I preached, haven't you? Um, you read through these parts with all the sacrificial systems like, like in the book of Leviticus. And it points, as the book of Hebrews says, to the one who is willing to give his life, the sacrifice of the one sinless one. For those of us who don't deserve to be in the presence of God, it points to him. Uh, you read all of these different rules that kept Israel distinct as a people. Don't do this, don't do this. And it points to the fact that they had to be held together as a people so that the Messiah could come through them. You even read the great stories where most people read the stories of people like Moses and David. And at the end of the day, the purpose of the Bible is not to do what some stories do, to say, be like David and Moses. Uh, because do you remember our study in David? He was a messed up person. He needed forgiveness and salvation as much as you and I do. It all pointed to the need of all people to have Jesus. I'll tell you, the more you read this and the more you re recognize that all of it points back to the beauty and the beauty and the power and the work of Jesus. Then for me, at least, the entirety of this book comes to life. And I pray that that's going to happen more and more in the life of each one of you and the life of Lake Avenue Church. In 2013. In 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter had seen Jesus. He was writing to a group of people that just had to take his word for what Jesus had done. But he said something to them that I pray will be true of us. He turned to them and he said, Though you have not seen Jesus through all that points to him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him. And when that is true, you are filled with an inexpressible and a glorious joy. 
May that joy permeate the life of this church in this coming year. To his glory.